Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. When Thomas More wrote Utopia in the 16th century, he ensured that all those who would seek out a perfect society, inspired by his book, would have to answer for the literal Greek meaning of its title, no place. So, has there ever been a utopia? Depends on whom you ask. Adrian Shirk, who joined Smarty Pants several years ago to talk about her previous book, takes utopia to mean communities that have, quote, intentionally understood themselves as world-building away out of a death-dealing system, in the service of making, if only briefly, some idea of heaven on earth, not just for themselves, but however foolhardy, for all of humankind. From that definition, and from the bot by Belinda Carlisle, of course, comes the title of Shirk's new book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, an exploration of moments and movements in American utopianism then, today, and tomorrow, from the Shakers to the rebuilding of the Bronx to a Waffle House by the side of the road. Adrienne Shirk joins us from her own effort at Utopia in the Catskill Mountains. Thanks for chatting with me, Adrienne. Thank you for having me, Stephanie and Smarty Pants. It's a real pleasure to be back. So I know I quoted from one of your definitions of utopia in my introduction, but I feel like you define and redefine and expand and are constantly scribbling in the margins of your definition for utopia in this book. And you may, in fact, be the only person who would include a Waffle House in that definition. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate the description um, of uh, scribbling in the margins continuously as a part of defining this word, because that is what it feels like. You know, I think another way uh, that I define it sort of early on in the book is something that according to the laws of capital and conquest should not be able to exist, but which does anyway, um, even if that's only provisional or temporary. And, you know, another way I think of utopia in general is, you know, as a refusal in whatever form it takes, whether it's a movement to rebuild the Bronx by hand by the people who are living inside of it in the 70s and 80s, or whether it's a mystical (laughs) utopian shaker commune in the 19th century. Um, It's a refusal of the terms that you have been asked to to live under. Um, And it's not just a refusal that's time-based and approached through means like reform Um, or engaging various kind of political instruments, um, but a kind of immediate refusal, an action, or a series of continuous direct actions um, that have to do with world building, um, which I would offer as perhaps the last main idea that I feel like I couch utopianism in, which is, you know, it's about building um, not just a new world, but continuously building new worlds. as an ongoing effort. And so in that way, it's sort of less about an arrival and more just about like thinking about this sort of daisy chain of movements and communities um, who embody or exhibit this process, this essential kind of drive or need to experiment as a continuous activity you know, regardless of the viability of a particular one, the ways that we think of utopianism as like a fixed historical 
um, moment, i.e. something that happened in Western New York in the 19th century. <laughs> you know, I think that's been a real missed opportunity in utopian discourse uh, is that there really has been a habit of thinking of of utopianism in the United States as a historically fixed activity enacted by weird white Protestants <laughs> and not as a descriptive category that could encompass any number of movements or communities or activities at that time, before that time, and after that time. I mean, I think all of, like a lot of utopian movements, the ones that most people have heard of, like the Shakers or the Oneida community, or like any number of the Protestant ones really that like dotted the East Coast, you know, there's this tragic element to it because we think they're all gone and disappeared. But I like the metaphor of this daisy chain. Like what lineage is there today? Are there leftovers from these communities now who are still continuing the experiment who looked at why you know the united community crumbled and are like aha we won't do that one thing anymore or is it a more complicated answer <laughs> i think it's a more complicated answer um and yet i also you know i i think it's an interesting question which is like you know on on the one hand were any of these 19th century experiments did they did they have longevity you know do they um and or are there people who or communities who are directly kind of engaging with that lineage, you know, self-consciously. Um, I think there's one <laughs> Shaker community left in Maine. Um, the Oneida Mansion still exists as a, as a living museum and a, a manufacturer of silverware. But I think that like anything resembling what those communities actually were or understood themselves as in the 19th century, specifically by those names and those ideas, really doesn't exist anymore. However, um, because uh, much like the uh, contemporary American left today is so small that you could be in many different parts of this very large country and, um, and often run into or find a lot of people who ha are common friends or fellow travelers or connected to some organization or group or community in a completely different part of the country, utopian activity for the entirety of its existence in the U.S. has been governed by similar principles. So there was always, um, then and today, so much exchange um, between even really different communities, different people who had really different uh, political commitments or theological beliefs. Um, and so there has always been an enormous amount of like grafting and, and, and learning um, from each other between even like the harmonists and the shakers or, you know, twin Oaks, which is, is very large and very long lasting intentional community in Virginia, you know, drawing from and learning from earlier communes, actually like anarchist communes from the fifties and sixties that didn't last, but whose lessons and kind of structures this still living intentional community today drew from extensively. So, I mean, why do they fail? Is there a through line for why they collapse? I think there's a lot of different through lines. I mean, I think there's a whole slate of um, foyerist phalanxes in the 19th century that kind of uh, 
grew out of uh, Charles Fourier's um, pretty radical sci-fi writings about um, creating these sort of utopian 1600-person self-contained cooperative um, modules endlessly replicated throughout the world to create a perfect perfect and self-sustaining human community. So many of those fell apart because of ideological disagreements about like vegetarianism and and or like how many hours each person should be devoted, devoting to labor. <laughs> so it could be that small or that sort of granular. Um, and then a lot of the times it's fiscal. It's just that because this experiment is happening, you know, under capitalism, um, regardless of how like nimble and thrifty and rad and innovative you are, um, that at some point you just don't have enough fiscal power to to continue anymore so i think of like black mountain college is another utopian experiment i you know which really magnificently existed for you know almost 20 years as this like amazing fugitive educational project on an extremely precarious budget and labor system and it was amazing and and at the end of that 20 year period they just actually finally had nothing they had no money left um you know so sometimes it's just it's just an empty bank account and then i think um the third really big failure is some kind of like violent narcissistic white man (laughs) who's at the helm of or has ended up at the helm of some kind of utopian project or institution or movement um and commit some kind of like heinous act of uh violence power or control, um, I suppose it, it does not need to, it is not always a narcissistic white man, but, um, but often that was, that's a real, that's a real through line is that someone in a seat of power becomes tyrannical. I think that gets at one of the conundrums at the heart of utopian movements, which is that sometimes they seem an awful lot like cults. And sometimes cults style themselves after utopias. So how do you parse the difference between the two? Because to commit to a utopian project or an intentional community often does require a kernel of unyielding belief in something. You know, I have been, uh, I was reading uh, Cultish by Amanda Montel um, recently. We actually had a conversation for the podcast for um, Skylight Books so I've been thinking a lot about this too. Cultish is this really wonderful um, sort of narrative nonfiction study, which is actually really similar to mine in that she is like, okay, it's really irritating the way that the word cult is used in like American discourse because it immediately sort of shuts down um the ability to like think through what that actually is. It's used as kind of a pejorative to immediately kind of decry something as, as, as sinister. Um, And I think I kind of came at my own book with a, with a similar irritation, which was that like this word utopia or, or an American utopian project is used to either describe something so narrow, i.e. weird white Protestants in the 19th century in Western New York, 
Or it's used as a pejorative to just be like, that's stupid or that's impossible. And I'm like, well, what if, what if we just used it or thought about it as a descriptive category? So Amanda's book is like, okay, let's just use cult as a descriptive category. What are its constituents? And, and then I think I did something similar with the, with that idea or the word utopia. As I was thinking about that comparison, I was also forced to kind of think about like, you know, where, where do these things, you know, overlap? Are they actually indistinguishable? But I think that a cult, um, you know, one of its kind of constituents is a program, a will to have some kind of ideological unity as a, as a central tenant of its existence. There's some mechanism or apparatus to kind of create and compel some level of pretty strict or hygienic unity among its adherents. You know, a utopian project might actually be incidental, might might kind of emerge um, not out of ideology, but out of kind of, you know, a series of labors. I'm like, is a is a, a DIY like community garden in the Bronx that just that has people freely tending to it and which produces and gives away free food to anyone who wants it or is passing by? You know, I'm like, that feels like a kind of utopian project. That feels like something that like actually shouldn't really be able to happen according to the laws of capital and conquest, but does anyway. But it doesn't require ideological commitment or agreement that's conscious from anyone. There's no one organizing or compelling or teaching how to become the kind of person who participates in that thing. There's a value and a, certainly like to some degree, you know, an ideology embedded in everyone's desire to come and participate in that labor. But but there's no kind of like centralized mechanism that's requiring it. And so even in the case of, let's say, the 19th century mystical wilds of Western New York utopianism, you know, you have these communities like Oneida and the Harmonists and the Shakers who have a pretty intense set of shared theological beliefs. Um, and those theological beliefs organize the way that they live their lives, but they were also free to leave. But also like the harmonists were helmed by a patriarchal leader. So it's not as though the lines or the boundaries between these definitions are so clear, but I do think that there is a meaningful difference in the abstract. So how do you judge the success of a utopian project? In the case of Black Mountain College, for instance, you can point to famous faculty or alumni in the arts like Robert Rauschenberg or Cy Twombly or John Cage, who themselves achieved mainstream success, Or, you know, some of them would go on even to try to establish secondary utopian communities influenced by the principles of the college. Are those kind of the measures of the success of a utopian project? Or is success not even an appropriate metric? It's a great question. And I I think it's, it's something that haunts me and it haunts the book, too. And it doesn't ever really fully resolve. Um, You know, I think... At, at least one thing that I that I that I arrive at is that I think the idea of longevity um, as a measure of success feels paltry 
um, when thinking about utopian activity in part because um, longevity is a measurement that we use to assess success. Usually longevity is also the mark of having accumulated some kind of horrific other level of like power that has been fundamentally corrupting of whatever cool thing was happening. So it's not longevity, although longevity can be benign. You know, I think of Twin Oaks, you know, which is, has been around for about 50 years, or I think of the, the Camp Hill communities, which are sort of dispersed throughout um, the United States, which have been around for almost 100 years. These sort of mutual aid communities that are interlinked, but self-sustaining communities in and of themselves of adults with uh, developmental disabilities and, and neurotypical adults living kind of in symbiosis. You know, that's longevity, but does that, is that what makes it successful? Um, you know, I think that it has so much more to do with the longer story or quilt of activity that each of those different contributions and each of those different projects are a part of rather than the individual communities or projects themselves as metrics of, of their own individual success. Um, I think if a community or a utopian experiment, you know, manages to not be an agent of harm manages to provide something beautiful and and luxurious and life-giving for a month or a year or 10 years or 50 years um, does not become uh, a violent institution or a source of tyrannical patriarchy. You know, that's, that's a success. Does it contribute? Does it add new knowledge or new dimension to the overall body of knowledge of utopian experimentation that's like you know, as old as, as imperialism, um, because it's a corrective to imperialism. Did it make someone, you know, a hundred years later, look back on that activity and think, you know, hmm, maybe that aspect could be replicated in this new different thing I'm doing now. <laughs> you know, like that's a success. Those are sort of the metrics I'm working with. They're very eschatological. It's more like a, the success of the the arc of justice, which is really long. I'm like, that's sort of what the book perhaps insanely uh, takes as its perspective. <laughs> I mean, one thing we haven't really discussed yet is like your own efforts at Utopia. And a huge part of the book is about a difficult period in your life and how utopia and even like writing about various utopias was like a lifeline and I wonder how has like the lived experience not just of like visiting these other places but trying it yourself changed your understanding of these very big very complicated communities well the book does emerge as this sort of lifeline or grappling hook as a way to sort of survive what was both a really difficult and unsustainable set of circumstances that I found myself in in my mid-20s taking care of my father-in-law who had become permanently and pretty profoundly disabled. Um, and as I was also just sort of caught in 
a city that was seeing the gulf of uh, living expenses and wages just like become exponentially larger every year. It was also an ordinary crisis, like the difficulty of my own circumstances really mirrored, you know, the vast majority of of people in this country. And at a certain point kind of felt this refusal. We're not going to go down like this. So the book was really just this way of like synthesizing or thinking through or feeling some hope about what might be possible because of what has already happened and what has already been done. And through that process, we moved into this house and immediately extended it and developed it into this uh, basically like a cooperative artist's residency. Something that was helpful about this arising from a kind of research project was that it made me really sensitive to the necessity um, of letting it evolve constantly to make sure that it was always meeting the basic need, which was like not an ideological commitment, but rather a, 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 a suite of like pretty basic, like material um yeah material needs for me and and anywhere between like 10 and 30 people um not because 30 people are living here but at any given time there might be actually like a lot of different people in some kind of coordinated use of of the studios or the land or the rooms or uh someone might need emergency housing or boarding or someone needs a space to develop something or someone's in some other kind of crisis that that there are all these ways in which the space can meet a variety of needs and essentially everyone gets to have something that they would not be able to use or have or access if we were all doing it on our own um and so long as it's meeting that, so long as like life is a little more luxurious, a little more creative, there's a little more room, there's a little more possibility, um, there's a little more time actually for people to be able to make stuff or do stuff or dream about stuff that we would not be able to otherwise if we were all accessing these things in an atomized way. In terms of like what I've learned, I think some of the questions are just like ongoing living questions, which is, how do you have a private life with porous boundaries? How do you have a home that's also sort of a cooperativized resource? Um, how do you critique capitalism while doing all of this on a piece of private property? <laughs> like letting those questions actually be questions that just are living and ongoing and and creating kind of a tension that you just exist inside of. And from that tension, constantly come up with like new strategies or new answers. But it does fundamentally alter what you think is possible. We have links in the show notes to Adrian Shirk's new book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia, as well as our previous interview with her about women in American religious movements. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.